Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. We're so glad you've joined us today. I am joined today by co-host Pamela Stokes-Eggleston. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. How are you doing, faring? Well, we're all faring fine here on the East Coast with only three feet of snow in our area. And <laughs> I have no snow plow, so I'm I'm going to be homebound for quite some time longer. Our guest, Dave Anderson, is joining us today. And I'll, I'll give you a little aside. We spoke last night and Dave was celebrating getting out of the house and having dinner out after cabin fever because he did get plowed. Wow. I know. So Dave, yay, is right. Um, <laughs> let's do a quick introduction, then we'll jump right into the show. Um, Dave Anderson is former Airborne, worked CENTCOM and intelligence in various agencies and has 31 years of service. He continues that service with multiple projects really helping our returning veterans with PTSD and TBI. And I would like him to describe his background and how his work came about and why it's so important to him. So, Dave, welcome to Military Network Radio. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to join you all. My Um, pleasure. Yes. Well, I had about a uh, 30-year career in the military as an intel officer, and uh, the final half of my career was in joint operations. So in, uh, Airborne, in my world, crosses a couple different services. In the Air Force, I was part of Airborne Reconnaissance, mm-hmm. and I was able to uh, go to Iraq as part of the 18th Airborne Corps uh, on loan to the Army. So okay. uh, in the services, they have two different meetings. I just wanted to... Uh, uh, expand on that for the audience. I'm a Great. retired colonel, combat wounded warrior. Um, I pulled hot missions in the Cold War. That's the way I like to describe airborne mm-hmm. reconnaissance. Okay. And um, had a combat tour in Iraq in 2005 um, while my wife was pregnant with our first child. Uh, always <laughs> so fun. She was back. At least she was back in Hawaii, where we were stationed at the time. So mm-hmm. I uh, kept a diary, though. Uh, it was uh, obviously uh, uh, an added. Um, uh, it had a. It added a lot to my tour, as far as uh, really thinking through what was going on. And I, in fact, kept a diary just in case uh, he never got to meet his father. So. You know, he would benefit from my advice and have some connection to me. So uh, that was interesting to stop and do that every day. Uh, You know, that was a smart thing to do because (laughs) journaling is a good way to get out some of your thoughts as it goes on. But it also serves as a record, as you said. Well, (laughs) yes. And and, uh, I've become uh, quite a writer during this journey. So it's pulled, uh, there's been a lot of time for reflection and, uh, writing therapy, I think is 
a very useful tool for a lot of people that want to go there. I'll Absolutely. That later. Now, how did you get involved with working with specifically PTSD and TBI returning veterans? Okay. Well, I had, uh, after, after combat, I had an extended, uh, I'll just say torturous, for lack of a better word, education and struggle over several years. They call it delayed onset. I think it was always going on. And I never really understood what was happening because no one at that time had informed me about combat trauma wounds. And I used combat trauma. I'll define that later uh, to define and lump together PTSD and TBI. Okay. But uh, uh, finally, three years later, I didn't even know what the acronym PTSD was. Uh, Three years later, I had a grand mal seizure, and I finally started connecting the dots to what was happening to me Mm. and uh, how my life was permanently affected. I spent the end of my career at Walter Reed Bethesda. Back then, it was switching. Walter Reed was coming in to the Bethesda mm-hmm. um, site, the National Military Medical Center, and I gained some valuable training and coping skills in the uh, in the trauma recovery program. Uh, I started mentoring others on the importance of treatment and what resources were available and how to maneuver the VA. And over time, that grew into a a small nonprofit, which is now the Veterans Advocacy Center. And the VAC focuses on healing the body, mind, and spirit and linking veterans and families to the overwhelming myriad of resources out there. And, you know, you you make an excellent point. There are so many resources that so often people are daunted finding the one that works for them. And I think that's something we would like to discuss with you today is that, Each person with a TBI is different from the other person with the TBI, whether it's location in the brain or uh, severity. PTSD also varies with the symptoms. And we were talking on the phone last night, you and I, about the various treatments that exist and how there is no one-size-fits-all to make treatment uh, really work for most people. So that part's important that we do acknowledge that it isn't a one-size-fits-all. I think that too often there is, okay, do this and you'll be better. But that doesn't really work in real life, does it? No, (laughs) not at all. Uh, You know, the kind of fallback or initial um, thing we run into being at the hospital, seeing a doctor, whatever type of doctor it is, uh, you know, I'm including psychologists, neurologists, the whole gamut of, of folks that I've worked with. Uh, you would be prescribed medications or go through some counseling. And uh, that's that's the primary uh, interface up front with uh, male and female veterans and their families. I suggest they get their families involved. And that was helpful to us, especially their spouses. Uh, or any significant others. Uh, The main thing we had talked about yesterday that we wanted to highlight were uh, there are different issues with prescribed medications for wounded warriors, at least from my experience uh, in group therapy and and working with other veterans, friends, brothers, and sisters. Um, And I wanted to highlight, you hear people use the term brothers and sisters in the military a lot because 
and I've told people before because we are really like a family, and you realize that as you retire amongst veterans because you have instant credibility or an attachment uh, uh, that you share, a camaraderie that you share uh, with your brothers and sisters in the military. Um, you know, Dave, it's interesting. So, I, I'm going to cut go in here because Pam is a wounded warrior spouse um, with PTSD and TBI uh, with her husband. And, and Pam, I know you have a question. Well, I had a actually, as we're talking, a couple of things are are piquing my interest, one of which is um, sort of your experience and why you decided to develop um, the VAC and what you hope your message is in terms of the prescribed medications. I'm still dealing with some of that. Um, I am, as Linda had mentioned at the beginning of the show, a proponent of looking at um, complementary ways to help with some of these uh, systemic issues. And and these issues won't go away. Um, And it seems to me that even at the VA, I mean, the DOD side, as you were at Walter Reed, my husband was at the old Walter Reed as well, is that's all they know how to do. And to bring in somebody who knows something a little bit different, you know, complementary or alternative even, um, was a slow process indeed. So I was just wondering your thoughts on that. And, and you know, as you, as you talk about the prescribed medications in your instance, what are you seeing with other soldiers dealing with some of the okay, issues surrounding you. that? That's a great question. Uh, basically a summary of what, I discussed with other veterans while we were going through it. Actually, in the trauma recovery program at Walter Reed, that was the first time we were exposed to other therapies. I'll just use that general term for now. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would, you know, do things such as art therapy. In the afternoon, we would take field trips to expose ourselves, you know, to crowds and the metro and as a group together. Uh, We would help with... uh, training animal therapy. We would help with training service dogs there on site at the mm-hmm. Wounded Warrior facilities and brigades. Um, and all kinds of light therapy. I, I started acupuncture there in the pain clinic with um, the studs they put in your oh, ears. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, my husband did that too, actually. He did the acupuncture there, so, yeah. Yeah, that was, that's how I I wanted to try acupuncture. I wanted to try anything. So uh, that helped, uh, actually. Um, so I started to realize there were other things you can do. They exposed us probably to 10 or 15 different things, blue light, uh, um, guided uh, guided therapy. I, I can't think of the term right now, but uh, um, just where you would relax with somebody and listen oh, to guided uh, meditation or guided yeah I rest or something yeah yeah exactly um as far as uh, getting back to prescribed medic medications uh, uh they have a purpose obviously um mm-hmm. and a lot of times they are uh the bedrock or initial thing you need to do to get stable or deal with certain issues um but over time, a lot of times, um, you get used. To, the veterans were getting used. Like I had, I have seizure uh, disorder, so uh, I was on 
a medication for that. Uh, and people start dealing, they, they have a certain set of medications initially for their issues and they're used to that. But then as they start to deal with other wounds or different wounds, um, um, they'll come across the new doctor and there'll be various doctors involved. And they'll Dave, add another I need to break in here. Dave, we're going on to break. Okay. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be back in a few moments. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Are you looking for something more in your life or business? More success? More stability? More happiness? It's all out there waiting for you, but it doesn't just happen. You've got to go get it. Make it happen with Michelle McCullough, where motivation and strategy intersect. Michelle is a serial entrepreneur, acclaimed speaker, and the WooHoo Radio Network's resident business and success strategist. Michelle has the smart strategies and experience to help you improve your life and take your business to the next level. You've got big dreams. You've got big vision. Now it's time for you to make it happen. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are talking with Dave Anderson of the uh, Veterans Advocacy Center, who is involved with uh, complementary treatments and even a study for those with TBI and PTSD. Because medications don't work for everyone, or there may be alternative things that work better for others. Again, we talk about how PTSD and TBI are not a one-size-fits-all solution. Now, Dave, you are running a study right now for combat trauma as a complementary therapy, alternative therapy, using hormone replacement, mainly because PTSD is a both a psychological and a physical neuroendocrine uh, condition for for many, and they respond well to hormone therapy. Can you talk more about the study, how people can find out about it, and what your goals are in providing this alternative or complementary therapy, depending on your condition? Absolutely. That would be my pleasure. Um, and again, it's uh, in seeking out alternatives and really becoming a believer in and just finding out all the different options we have out there. It's, for me, it was about gaining coping skills and then teaching others that they need to have a full array of coping skills that they did use at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to finish on the uh, 
the medications. People might not understand the mixes or they switch doctors. Unfortunately, a lot of people self-medicate, which uh, Mm -hmm. complicates their medications they're on. And uh, they end up being their own case manager, which is not the easiest thing to do when you're overwhelmed and they're not experts. So, and and if too many people will stop taking medications on their own without informing their doctors, which doesn't help the team effort. <laughs> so, to have other other options to them eventually, I think, is very important. Yeah, you, know, you know, the most basic one is exercise, uh, art therapy, animal therapy. I've found a list of there's literally hundreds of different things, and I'm sure you've covered it in other shows. Um, mm-hmm. bi- uh, bioidentical hormone optimization was one that came to us. We were approached by BioTE, which is called BioT Medical. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Gary Donovitz um, um, uses bioidentical hormone therapy for all types of people. Um that are that suffer from lower hormone levels, and uh, uh, as you age, uh, your hormone hormone levels will drop, whether it's uh, estrogen or testosterone, and also uh, trauma, uh, depression, stress, you know, anxiety mm-hmm. will affect it as well. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the issues as your hormone levels drop you're going to experience things and anybody that's getting older like myself notice these right off the bat you have more pain it's harder to sleep um you may Mood become changes. more irritable right yeah uh just a variety of of issues which coincidentally also are several symptoms that you have with uh, combat trauma and uh Again, I mentioned the combat trauma phrase. I've used that to address other uh, veterans that are dealing with uh, those wounds, and they they don't want to be labeled uh, by the behavioral health side of things. So combat trauma helps them accept it as a wound, as you said, a physical wound as well, mm-hmm. and that it's okay. It gets them over the warrior stigma we place upon ourselves, but... Uh, what I found with talking to veterans, uh, uh, you know, I talked to uh, one story. I talked to a 32-year-old veteran, and uh, he had happened to actually had done a blood test, so he knew what his testosterone level was. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, I just feel like a 60-year-old. And when he told me his number, uh, I'm 55, so I knew what mine was, and his was half of what mine was. Wow. And I go, no wonder you feel like a 60-year-old. You have the testosterone level of a 60-year-old. I right. mean, that was his own words. It was amazing. But for myself, um, we use pellets in this study. It's a year-long study, and um, we fund the treatments for a year, and uh, we're going to get testimonials from the veterans, and then you know, try to get it uh, approved as an alternative treatment. Um, the, you know, what's uh, involved, Dave, what's involved with it? Like, what is it, like, are there sessions where you have to sit, where the veteran has to sit, and um, what's the process of getting this type of therapy? Well, 
if I may insert in here, it's it's pellet therapy, which is an insertion, a surgical insertion under the skin. Oh, okay. And that so it's time release, and so it really Correct. provides an even distribution of the hormone. And I think a lot of people really underestimate just how strongly hormones affect everything from mood to uh, physical ability, uh, pain. Uh, being able to tolerate pain tolerances higher. I mean, it is an amazing system in our, in our bodies that is underutilized in terms of the medical profession taking a look unless you have an adrenal gland problem or a thyroid problem. So it's only now being looked at for PTSD, and it's really very interesting. And that's where Dave's work came to light um, to me, because I know that there are many people who are having these issues and only really now realizing that PTSD is a physical problem as well. Would you agree with that, Dave? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, case in point, the 32-year-old was not at the point where he was losing his testosterone levels naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was all caused by uh, the chronic anxiety he was suffering from uh, right. with PTSD and TBI. So that's proof how how bad, how hard it affects your system. Now, I've got a question for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dave. Okay, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say that uh, you addressed pain. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're having some major pain, you know if you've got a headache or migraine or bad pain from Mm -hmm. shoveling snow (laughs) or just (laughs) from your wound. Okay. It affects it affects your day completely. I have two young kids, you know. Uh, I have to be very patient around them. But if I have pain, that affects my whole coping ability very hard, completely, comprehensively. So if I reduce my pain levels alone, I can do much better. I can apply my my skills and my coping abilities towards my combat trauma. Uh, much more effectively because I'm not dealing with pain. It's not sucking up my 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 ability to cope. And well put. Um, my question was related to the fact that in your study, are you segregating the TBI from the PTSD, or are you doing it as a joint protocol? Uh, we're doing it as a joint protocol, obviously. Uh, uh, the pellets again, as you said, provides twenty four access to twenty four hour access to the mm-hmm. hormone where patches and pills may have a cycle effect right um, other parts of society that have trauma like uh, public service workers or people that have dealt with it uh, they've been using pellets uh, as a matter of fact, tricare covers pellet therapy um, while you're on active duty so but that drops mm-hmm. off once you leave. So that's that's what we're trying to bridge the gap there. Hmm. Very Uh, interesting because we know that um, hormones are some of the reason that people keep re-upping to go back to combat, that adrenaline rush, um, all of those various hormones that surge through your body during a crisis to keep you alive. It's when you come home and you don't need those survival hormones to do what they do, that it's retraining the body. So this is very interesting to use the um, pellet therapy to deliver the hormone therapy to see how it affects. How do people find out more about the study itself and participating, and, and how many are participating in your study? Well, our our goal is 100. Uh, okay. Uh, BioT is, is funding 100 uh, veterans over the time, but 
Dr. Donovitz has pledged to help as many as we can, um, whether it's through follow-on programs or, you know, the goal is, again, to hopefully get it added to the options that the VA will take care of. So mm -hmm. it helps uh, as many veterans as possible. The uh, You can go to our website, which is um, www.vac-usa.org, vac-usa.org, or our Facebook page, which is the Veteran Advocacy Center on Facebook. Uh, that'll provide links also to BioTE Medical and their Facebook page. You know, it's interesting, too, um, as you are feeling better with whatever treatment is working for you, whether it's a combination of, of meds and hormones and counseling therapy, etc. Again, everyone needs a different mix to make it right. And I think what I loved about this topic today is that it provides yet another option for people to consider to ask their care teams about. Do you help them in uh, discussing this with the care team so that the care team is part and parcel because obviously buy-in by the VA would make this easier as you provide the evidence-based treatment uh, results. Yeah. Um, that kind of a, gets to why we formed the VAC in the first place. We were advocate uh, mentoring uh, other wounded warriors uh, brothers and sisters directly, just based on my experience, my colleagues' experience, to help them um, build coping skills and try different therapies and uh, maneuver the VA. Uh, the main thing was just raising awareness that there are hundreds of alternatives, holistic mm -hmm. options and activities they could try. So... Uh, we didn't want them to just limit themselves to visiting doctors and taking medications right. and, and doing therapy uh, to realize there's a lifelong options out there. And uh, so that the VAC just turned into an organization now, uh, as I mentioned before, to help them learn they have to be their own case managers. Uh, eventually, at some point, you really need to understand your combat wounds and the options. Uh, you can't just throw it all on the doctor's lap, you know, in the medical profession's lap and, and depend on it that it's going to go perfectly well for you. Dave, those are excellent points. And we have unfortunately run out of time. So I think we'll have you back when you've got your study results. You can find out more information on these bioidentical hormone optimization studies that are going on at vac-usa.org. So that's Victor Alpha Charlie-USA.org or go to the Facebook page by the same name. We are delighted to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dave. And we will be right back after these messages. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages.
often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are here with our guest. I'm not sure which one. We have one of two. Who's on with me? Pam, it's you and I. It's us. You know, I found it so interesting to talk about PTSD from the hormone therapy side because people so rarely have that aspect of things at the forefront. Everyone thinks of counseling, uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, mm-hmm. and and other reasons. And it's it's really very interesting when people are not considering the physical aspects of PTSD as well as the psychological. I believe we have one of our guests. Catherine, are you on with us now? Uh, yes. Good morning. Good morning, morning to you. We're we're waiting on Jeff at the moment. He's probably doing something terribly important, and we're delighted to have you on with us. Thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks so much. You're welcome. Jeff and I had a very good discussion yesterday about the the family issues and PTSD. I, I think that still remains something that can never be talked about enough. And I know your work has all been in family couples therapy and, and really taking a look at the impact of PTSD on family issues in terms of understanding them, helping them negotiate as a family unit, and, and address those elephants in the room that no one wants to talk about many times. Yes, absolutely. It's a really pressing issue. It really is. How do you really feel that interfamiliar or intergenerational trauma impacts spouses and children? Just from your standpoint. Well, you see this regularly. It's, it's mostly if the issues are not addressed, if there um, are you know, sort of obvious tensions and distress 
that are not dealt with openly in the family. And frequently it's grief and loss that's really profound. If it's not openly uh, resolved, not only with individuals but within the family, then those legacies get carried on uh, from one generation to the next. And you see the children expressing um, sadness, distress at school, sort of anxiety, heightened anxiety. So the positive side of this is to be able to intervene, um, be able to talk with families about these issues and bring them to the surface and actually sometimes find ways in um, day-to-day life to um, honor uh, the those who've been lost and actually revisit some of the grieving that had not been done earlier on, but in a way of transforming the grief into what we sometimes call post-traumatic grief, where uh, families are able to get past some of the you know, some of the um, painful effects of intergenerational transmission. You know, it, you're you're absolutely right, and I think that uh, I I call it ambiguous loss. Um, the grief and and all of that sort of information is definitely part of part and parcel, but it also has effects with the comorbidities like substance abuse or depression, chronic pain, sexual dysfunction. And there's there's things that are affected that people may not recognize as symptomatic of PTSD, what, what I know you and I have been calling subclinical PTSD. So how would you, that's why I love when you tell these stories like you just did in terms of what it looks like to other people. Can you describe what it may look like to a, a spouse well, often to a spouse, the um, you know the service member who's recently returned home seems remote, doesn't want to talk, distant. Spouse often feels rejected, feels as if that uh, they're no longer the intimate partner where they can have a really important conversation. Uh, so they, there's an estrangement that builds, and partner doesn't always understand that this distancing and detachment is part of an adjustment, is part of post-traumatic stress, of, of rebalancing oneself. Um, and it's not necessarily a rejection of the partner. It's not absence of love. If anything, it can be the difficulties in, in moving from one place to another, particularly from deployment to back home. Um, and if what happens often, if the issues are not addressed, then uh, the distress gets self-medicated with uh, substances, so drinking or other drugs, and that's often the cycle that can start. And the partners will begin to recognize, um, is my partner going off and um, with friends and drinking? Is it their solitary drinking? Is there more drinking? Is there obvious substance use? Uh, so those are, there are, those are all clues. Um, irritability and- is another clue. Very Um, helpful. We finally have Jeff on board. Jeff, are you with us? Yes. Wonderful. I think we had um, phone call difficulties, which would not surprise me um, with the way that everything seems to be gremlins ever since we got this snowfall. I know the two of you are not in snow, but Pam and I are, so it's probably on our end. (laughs) Jeff, Catherine's just done a, a wonderful job of explaining some of the recognition factors for family members on and how it feels to them. Would you like to elaborate on that or to talk about um, things in, in different ways? First of all, can you give us some of your background? Catherine is our 
uh, is the co-director of the doctoral program at our Smith College School of Social Work Association that we have together. And Jeff, I, I'd love it if you would share your background and then grab onto one topic that you'd really like us to take for the rest of the program. Um, I have a PhD in social work and have written and spoken about uh, the phenomena of post-traumatic stress disorder for many, many years and, and have taught uh, in the academic setting for probably close to 30 years as well. Um, my biggest uh, personal push, I think, is to t- look at right what you're looking at, which is um, um, what do family members, what should they expect from the returning warrior and how does that play out in their living room? And um, And I think most people today are educated on what post-traumatic stress disorder and some of the co-occurring conditions are, but the more difficult part of the conversation is also sort of the subtleties of it and the experiences of those family members and how do you negotiate those trauma-infested waters, as it were. Very true, and, and I think it presents differently, although there are a lot of commonalities, and Catherine was explaining what, the, what it looks like, and I, I thought very well, and uh, you said in the living room, I think what we find often is that there's two places of conversation that go on the most in these families. One's in the kitchen, because that's usually the heart of the home. And then the other one is less discussed, which is the bedroom, yes. where a lot more goes on that is really, I'll call it the elephant in the room. Um, and I, I know that you have a, a special interest in sharing some help for people who this is never discussed with. Yes, there's certainly an intimacy of trauma, as it were, uh, which sounds like it would be at odds with each other. Um, and I, I think uh, it's, it's, it creates sort of a difficult, almost bipolar experience where on one hand you want your, the people in your family to be very close with you when you come home. And on the other hand, there's this, this elephant in the room, as you said, or a chasm between the two of you where you want to hold each other at arm's length. Um, there are worries about infidelity after lengthy military-induced family separations. Um, there are, it, it's confusing to, to perhaps be physically intimate, but maybe emotionally distant or verbally quiet. Um, and then people appear different. And so how do you negotiate some of those things? And I can certainly talk to everybody about what kinds of things people struggle with and how to deal with that. That'd be great. We have about five minutes until the first break, four minutes, something like that. So please launch in. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, I'd like to say that this is sort of a personal mandate as well as uh, a vocation, um, because getting this right, I'm I'm also a fellow soldier, and I I mention that because I'm not immune to it. Um, So there, so so having written about that, it doesn't mean that uh, these things don't happen. So it's both personal and professional. you know, a lot of times uh, people have these confusing experiences, and it starts off perhaps very subtle. So, for example, um, when I'll just use myself. When I when I came home, here I am giving these talks about what people are going to go through, and it really didn't mean a darn thing. So, for me personally, so you know, we did a lot of the things that people do. We celebrated, we partied, we we, um, and then it's it's almost like being a prisoner of a war for a while. You come home, and then after about a half an hour, you don't know what to do with yourself. Um, and, and so I remember not wanting to get in the way. Um, and my wife, we were a family of four and the wife 
my wife referred to the family as a threesome, which is not a great term to use around a returning husband. Um, <laughs> and, um, um, and so I said, well, give me something simple to do so I don't come in and change all the rules. And you want to be careful not to just say the sheriff's back in town, here are all the new laws or the old laws are back in place again. And you, you really have to slow down and catch up and see the path, uh, process instead of the pathology or, or see the forest through the trees, as it were. So um, she said, well, why don't you go to the bank? And, and get some cash so we can go out and have some fun. So I said, I think it can do that. And um, and ultimately, I was escorted out of the bank by the police. Now, I don't really know what I did in that bank, but apparently I cast a shadow that made people nervous. And, and my wife kept talking, I said, you need to calm down. I said, I'm just waiting online for the teller. Um, and I didn't do anything necessarily aggressive, but apparently I cast a shadow that made people nervous. Um, and so you're keyed up. And, of course, this is really confusing. Get into the car. I managed to keep it cool as, as I'm waving at everybody who knows me in the community, which was really embarrassing, and then um, get in the car and manage to keep it cool. And then I have a complete meltdown in the car and mm. put the car off the road and scared the family. And it was not said some choice things, and it was not a father of the year moment. And then I realized I had a problem. And so what I, I say that because I'm 50 years old and think I'm fairly sophisticated, and I write on this stuff, and you know what? It didn't matter. So I really worry about that young couple who may have spent six to eight years apart of their marriage because they're dual military or because of multiple deployments or even a couple of years apart. And they may not even think about this stuff and wonder what's happening to me. Um, and of course, and I say this very, very carefully, you know, it, it, when you have a physical injury, like losing a limb, God forbid, not that I would trade places with that person, but you lose a limb, it's obvious. You lose a limb, your parents rally support to you. You lose a limb, people assume there's some psychological concerns and the family's going to have to adjust to all of that. But when your gray cells get mushed together and your marbles go, get rolled around and you look normal, right. um, you are treated differently, um, and 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 so your family assumes you're the same, the community assumes you're the same, and you Hang don't on. even know you're doing those things like I was in that bank that day. True. Hold tight. We're going on a short break, and we'll be right back. Military Network Radio. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. LinkedIn. It's a great tool and a great way to do business in today's social media driven world. And Carol McManus is the LinkedIn lady with the LinkedIn lady show Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern on allbusinessradionetwork.com. The LinkedIn lady show is designed to inform, inspire, and educate businesses. Every social media site has a specific demographic, personality, and purpose. And the LinkedIn lady will interview a variety of guests, such as business owners who can showcase their business and talk about how they use social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google+, Pinterest, and of course, LinkedIn. For more on Carol and the show, check out her website, LinkedInLady.com. As trends change and new applications become available, the LinkedIn Lady Show will bring that information to you in an easy-to-use, fun, and engaging way. Every Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern, it's the LinkedIn Lady Show with Carol McManus on AllBusinessRadioNetwork.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. 
be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're here with Jeff Yarvis, who is discussing that elephant in the room with us, uh, intimacy and PTSD. Uh, what that feels like, what that looks like. Catherine Basham brought in some of the factors about what it looks like to a spouse, etc. In general, PTSD terms. And Jeff is carrying us into that more difficult area. And I would love it, Jeff, if you could share some real-life intimacy story because I know so many are hungry for this information and it simply is not discussed and and we can have you back another time to do a bigger show but we have about 13 14 minutes and would love to hear you give a real life example if you have one at hand okay uh, sure I'd be happy to and um, I'll start with something simple and then I'll go perhaps from one room to the next as it were from kitchen to the bedroom um, okay so the um, one of the things that you don't see in, you know, and you don't learn about when you're hearing about post-traumatic stress disorder are the, the subtle things like feelings like guilt and shame. They're not in any diagnostic manual per se or on some um, chart that tells a soldier this is the kind of thing you're going to experience with this disorder. Um, so one of the silly things that's a rite of passage uh, for lots of parents is teaching your kids to ride a bike. And so uh, after a year of being gone, I came home to and I thought, you know what, I can, this is something my, my daughter was really close to riding a bike. We lived in Europe, and it seems like all German kids have a bike issued to them when they're born. And so my, my young child said, I'm embarrassed that I don't know how to ride a bike. I said, I can do this. In fact, I want to do this. This is something I've dreamt about. And so I got outside with her, and, and I was like a drill instructor, ride the bike, you know, ride the blankety-blank bike. And, and, um, and she started to cry, and people in the neighbor were like, well, the little social worker's family's not so perfect now. And, um, but it, and if I, it wouldn't have been something that drove me into therapy or marriage counseling, but now that I think about it, it's as if, and it speaks to these subtleties, it was as if if I could just teach my daughter to ride her bike, um, it would wipe away a year of not being a father for a year, mm-hmm. all that guilt that came with that. And mm-hmm. I think it speaks to the the real challenge of, now, if you can't teach your kid to ride a bike, what about things like pillow talk? I mean, it, that's more even more complicated. And how do you get into that? And, oh, by the way, she's still not riding her bike. So as a teenager, she likes to remind me of that when she's upset with me about something. And it does cut to the quick because it strikes to that very deep guilt. And so it takes mm-hmm. a certain amount of, I'm the parent, I have to take these hits and step back from that. I'm the one who was gone. I need to listen to my spouse and, and, and understand what they've been through. Everybody knows I'm coming home with war stories and I'm going to be treated like a hero. But there are heroes at home that really live a more mundane but none, nonetheless heroic story. And I like to say we all serve. 
so a, a case study from the bedroom, as it were, I had a young couple who came into treatment, and, um, and she said, uh, my husband's had two tours. He has PTSD. I've had one tour in between. His, I think I have PTSD, and it would have been very easy to hide in that story. But when we started drilling down into the story, um, she said, we've had two kids along the way. We conceived children during R&R, so there was a lot to adjust to. The normal couple without deployment struggles to raise young children and adjust to that family life. Um, and it became clear that they were having intimacy troubles. He was He was drinking to go to sleep, and he had never drank before. And so she made him qu- promise to quit drinking, which he did promptly. Um, and But he wasn't sleeping now because he couldn't just shut that that mm-hmm. schedule and that hypervigilance off. You know, you're working 28 hours a day. You're outside the fob getting shot at. You can't just shut that off. There, That's a protective measure that we're on the event horizon of figuring out medically. But right now, we don't know how to exactly unhardwire that brain that's changed. And we're not sure we should if they have to go back for another deployment. And that's part of the problem, too. We talk about reintegrating. But what if you don't want to fully reintegrate because it's not when, not if, but when I'm mm-hmm. going to deploy again. So the couples keep that thick skin on, and then, but yet they want to be close. So you're, again, you're holding people close but wanting to be distant. So here they are. They've engaged in having sex right away because they've been apart for a year and actually been apart six of the eight years they've been married. Um, yet they can't talk about anything. They really don't know what's going on with them as a couple, and, with, and the husband doesn't know what's going on with him as a soldier. Um, and so they go to bed angry after a fight, which is never a good idea. And, um, and so she feels terrible and reaches over to touch him, and he's out of the bed. So she gets up to find out where he is and apologize to him and finds him masturbating to porn. Now, I know the audience is probably like, oh, my goodness, the little Ali McBeal bubbles pop up when you hear the M word, and you go, oh, my God, we can't talk about this, and everybody gets red-faced. Um, and I can only imagine my mom cringing as I say that word out loud. Um, but, um, and I always say I'm not in the judgment business, I'm in the risk management business, so what you do uh, uh, is, is up to you as a couple. And so... Um, He's doing this to pornography, and you know uh, I do I don't like pornography. I think it reduces people to their genitals. But but for this couple, this was something they purchased together. It was an adjunct to their sex life, so this wasn't taboo for them. And actually, engaging in masturbation wasn't taboo for them. They actually did it together. Um, and so, but she said, well, he's doing it alone. And then this led to, and he felt like he got caught with dad's penthouse when he was 15 when she chewed him out. And so he said, I want a divorce. And once you say those words, they're kind of etched in your forehead. And those are hard to reel back in. And so this, he was fearful that she actually wanted, that he was fearful that she wouldn't accept him now. And she was fearful that he was going to leave and that there might have been infidelity downrange. But this couple had no history of infidelity, had had engaged in these behaviors openly together. But she said, he did it alone and, and he's lying to me. So ultimately... He said, we need to talk about this. And it was very difficult for her. And she was very angry and aggressive with, with me um, and kept telling me how stupid I was for asking these kinds of questions. Can't you see his PTSD? And we couldn't get to why he might do this. And so I said to her, you have two young children. And she goes, yes. I said, do they ever touch themselves? And she said, oh, my God, you're such an idiot. Um, they're not sexual. I said, that, that's right, they're not. I said, so why would a young child touch their, their body parts? And she said, 
um, I guess because it feels good. And I said, and what happens when it feels good? Because it's not sexual. They're just doing it because it's a part of their body that feels good. She right. says, I guess mm-hmm. it soothes them. And then she goes, oh, oh. I said, well, why might your husband right. who, who can't sleep, can't be intimate with you, can't talk to you, um, just had a fight with you, um, go out to the couch and, and do that to pornography? Well, I see your point. Well, I think you need to talk to him about that. And so she came in gleefully a couple of weeks later and said, boy, if you can talk about masturbation, you can talk about anything. Um, and, and the sort of the moral of the story is it would have been very easy if I were uncomfortable or any of the family members were uncomfortable to mm-hmm. talk about this topic. But it's these kind of elephants in the room, as you put it, that, that are really um, causing people to struggle with it. And, and, and just to, to bring it sort of full circle, so it, after the celebrations that you know, my own family had and the smoke cleared, you know, my wife said, I've thought about leaving you. And you can imagine what pops into mind. Did you cheat? And and so the good news on that story was she said no, but she said, am I a terrible spouse for having that thought? And, of course, I'm relieved to hear that. Um, <laughs> and, but at the same time, really troubled that the person they love more than anybody in the world has this terrible feeling, and you don't want to put them in that spot. Right. So you say, boy, how good are we that we can talk about this? But then I said to her, but you're going to have to, reassure me that you really don't want to leave because when I'm sitting up in the middle of the night and can't sleep, that's all I'm going to be thinking about. It's going to be like that ticker tape going around and around in my head. And she said, you bring it on. So for the next three months, I nagged her and nagged her. Did you cheat? Are you sure? Are we really okay? And at some point it becomes demeaning and, and, and uncomfortable because, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you're even though she gave me permission, I'm essentially accusing her of cheating all the time. Um, right. and, and there was no history like this couple. So she got really angry and dragged me by my earlobe to the night table drawer, and there were 27 batteries in there. And she said, that's the monument to my fidelity. Um, I joked around, that'll be my, my, the name of my memoirs, 27 batteries and other musings from Iraq. Um, but, yeah, that's a catchy title. Right. Yeah. But, you know, so, you know, the, problem, the point is, that, you know, that um, these very intimate things come up. Latex boyfriends were new to us. And it was a threat in some ways. And, and I worry about these, again, these couples who don't know how to talk about these things um, or, or don't even know what's going on. And there are risk factors like domestic violence. The children are observing the anger. They're observing the arguments and confusion on the part of the parents. And, you know, perhaps for another discussion, you know, what happens to, when that trauma gets transmitted to children, to those, you know, those folks. So um, there's a lot happening, you know, for these people. And I worry there, about there them. Is. I, I do too, and I, I, I'm I'm grateful to you for being so real about these stories because this is the kind of information that everybody thinks they're isolated and alone and having these issues by themselves, and they're not. Um, you have about two minutes left. I'd love it if you could just weave in a little bit about how the differences might be for those who are guard and reserve, and that's a big topic. But if no, you could just say question. if there are differences, thank you. No, that's a great question. So unprecedented, probably since World War II, we've involved our Guard and Reservists. And many times these units deploy as a whole, or they deploy what's called individual augmentees, which means these Mm -hmm. warriors go to war by themselves and join a unit. So integrating with a unit on the ground is difficult, and unit cohesion is different, and then they come home alone and don't journey home and have the the unit support when they get back. In the same way, it's not that they're not supported, but they, they often have experiences by themselves. And what our 
protective factors we call in mental health against post-traumatic stress might be sources of vulnerability for uh, guardsmen and reservists or vice versa. So, for example, um, unit cohesion is less. That might be a source of vulnerability. Expectations of getting serving overseas might be different. You know, a lot of people join the Guard and Reserves as a supplement to their income, to do something for their community, to handle domestic situations. The other thing is if the whole unit deploys from the Guard and Reserve, that unit might actually disrupt the, the functions of the entire community they're from. You lose your doctors, teachers, librarians. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the financial strain, if you had a higher-paying job and now you're making less money as a you know, maybe you were a doctor, and now you're you're not a doctor uh, in the reserves because you wanted to do something fun. You may make a lot less money, and so um, that's a problem. And then finally, you know, people expect you to have the celebrations, but they go back to their workplace, and they, the workplace has been holding their job for a year. They might celebrate their return, and those workers may have been doing your job in your absence. And they want you to get back to work, but now you might actually have to go to the VA and make appointments, and you're asking for all this sick time, perhaps, to go take care of yourself. Um, and and the workplace says, wait, wait, you just got back. You need to come back to work. And so there's there's pressures on those individuals um, that may not be there for the active duty folks. And I know there are some great yellow prog- ribbon programs to address these things, and the VA has really changed things to address their needs. But... We don't know the long-term effect right now on these men and women who have served in that capacity. No, we don't. And, and Jeff, I'm going to have to cut you off. We've run out of time. Thank you, Jeff Yarvis and Catherine Basham. Delighted to have you on Military Network Radio. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance 